You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it's uh, great to be with you today. Happy beginning of Formation Sunday to all of those of you who celebrate. (laughs) The parents in the room are like, someone's going to feed my children. I uh, I wonder if you've ever had a you-ain't-seen-nothing-yet moment. A you-ain't-seen-nothing-yet moment. This is when someone does something and they sense that you're surprised by what they've done. And then they kind of attempt to one-up themselves to really blow your mind. Uh, I had a neighbor do this to me while I was growing up. I went over to his house and he fancied himself as kind of having like a backwoods zoo. He was kind of like the Tiger King of North Mississippi. He had a snake, a pot-bellied pig, a sugar glider. And I, I was just trying to be polite, so I acted really impressed with all of this. And he sensed that. And then the climax of the tour came and he looked at me and said, why don't you come out back and check this out? <laughs> and that's what, looking back on it, that was his, you ain't seen nothing yet phrase. Uh, so what I did was I followed this redneck Steve Irwin outside. And it's true, I, I ain't seen nothing yet. Um, because when I opened the door, I was greeted by a pen full of hissing, uh, half-domesticated raccoons. So... You ain't seen nothing yet, indeed. In today's text, I think this is one of Jesus' you ain't seen nothing yet moments. At the beginning of Luke 15, which is what Eric preached on last week, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling about Jesus. They're offended by the company that he's keeping. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response, Jesus tells three parables, which culminates in the parable that we're going to look at today and next week, the parable of the prodigal son. And in it, we see a son who is radically lost, but at the same time, radically loved. And so do these Pharisees who are scandalized by Jesus receiving and eating with sinners, with this parable, he looks at him and he says, If you think that's scandalous, you ain't seen nothing yet. So if you would, please turn with me. We're going to look at Luke 15, verses 11 to 24. Luke 15, verses 11 to 24. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to him, Father, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this afternoon I want us to approach this, for many of us, probably familiar parable through two simple, simple headings, uh, radically lost and radically loved. Radically lost and radically loved. Let's consider radically lost first. In North Alabama, there's this place called the Sipsi Wilderness. It's a part of the Bankhead National Forest, and it's about 25,000 acres of forest and uh, the craggy foothills of the Appalachians. It's a really beautiful place. It has some of the most waterfalls in the Deep South. It's called the Land of a Thousand Waterfalls. And I've had the pleasure of not only hiking it, but being lost in it. Twice, in fact. And both times it went kind of like this. Me and some friends uh, went very naively and unpreparedly into the woods. Uh, we hiked for several hours until we then realized that we had been following not the trail, but a deer path. And so we're several miles deep into the woods, having followed a deer path, and we got to get back out. Now, how we got back out? I'll leave to your imagination, but I do want to tell you one lesson that I learned from these two experiences of being lost in the woods, and it's this. The key to being found is admitting that you're lost. The key to being found is admitting that you're lost. Now, uh, that might sound simple, obviously not simple enough for me, having gotten lost twice in the woods. It might sound simple, but it's actually pretty hard to realize and acknowledge that you're lost. Maybe you're not paying attention to where you're going. Maybe you're going, you think you're going the right way, but you're actually going the wrong way. Maybe you realize that something's off and you think you might be lost, but you have just too much pride to admit it. Now, this isn't true of just hiking. It's true of life itself. I think we can all think of many circumstances that this dynamic plays out in. 
But it's especially true with our spiritual life as well. It's possible to be radically lost and not recognize it or admit it. And so, thankfully, in this parable, Jesus gives us a picture of what being radically lost is like. He does it so that we can see ourselves in it, so that we can recognize that without Christ, we're just as radically lost as this prodigal son. So I want to consider this lostness by looking at three different movements from the prodigal's life. Rejection, reckoning, and return. Rejection, reckoning, and return. First, rejection. You know, when we read this parable through modern eyes, we probably think the big problem here is that he went and spent all of his money. That he was just kind of irresponsible with the wealth he had been given. But you have to understand, Jesus' original audience, this would have been ancient Near Easterners. This was a patriarchal society, so it was all about families, and the family was headed usually by one uh, a father. And so to them, the scandalous part of this story is what the son does to the father. You see, asking for his inheritance early was essentially like telling the father, I wish that you were dead. But the insult doesn't actually just stop there. You see, the father couldn't just call the bank and have them wire the son his inheritance. He would have to sell off the prodigal's portion of the family holdings. So he'd have to sell off one-third of the land, one-third of the livestock. And again, this isn't just money that's sitting in a bank. This is stuff that, if they had it, if they hadn't sold it, would have generated income and further wealth for the family. But now they have to get rid of it. Because of the prodigal's audaciousness, they are effectively uh, having their uh, wealth and income cut by a third. So what Jesus is doing here is he's not just painting a picture of a son with a little bit of a wild streak, a little rebellious. He's painting the picture of a son who doesn't just rebel against his father, but completely rejects his father in a high-handed fashion. And the son even admits to this. He says in verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He gets what he's done and the consequences of it. Friends, I want to suggest that if the gospel is ever going to be sweet to you, if the, if the gospel is ever going to be good news, you have to own that in describing the parable, the prodigal, Jesus is also describing you. You see, all throughout Scripture, sin is presented not just as rebellion against God, but as a high-handed rejection of Him. This is how one scholar puts it. He says, in biblical theology, the term sin refers to an open and brazen defiance of God by humans. It's so easy to soft-pedal our sin, to act as if we're not really as radically lost as we truly are. But remember, Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate the type of person that he has come to find. He's showing us what Jesus' type of person is. And who does he choose? Someone who is radically, hopelessly lost. 
Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus puts it this way. He says, a physician isn't needed by healthy people. A physician's needed by the sick. That's who Jesus has come for. Now let's return to the parable. After receiving his inheritance, the prodigal goes off into the far country. And this language of going off into the far country has resonance with uh, the life of Israel in the Old Testament. You see, Israel was called by God to be his holy, set-apart people. They were supposed to be a, a light shining on the hill of God's goodness to the nations around them. But what happened most often is that they would reject that call and instead would assimilate into the pagan nations around them. And what would happen is that they would end up worshiping foreign false gods. They would fall into idolatry. And then, typically, they would end up practicing these kind of heinous uh, religious practices like uh, temple prostitution and even uh, child sacrifice. So in saying that the prodigal went to the far country, Jesus is showing the trajectory of the prodigal's and ours radical lostness. It leads us away from God and towards idolatry. And it's in this far country that we see the, the prodigal experience, kind of the second movement of his life, the reckoning. He, all the consequences of his reckless living finally catch up with him. So he's squandered all of his money. He doesn't have any of his inheritance wealth or inheritance left. And a um, and a famine arises in the land. And so in order to live, he has to hire himself out to one of the locals. And that person has him feeding pigs. Now, this isn't just an innocent detail that Jesus put in there. It has a purpose. You see, Jesus is continuing to illustrate the downward spiral of what it's like to be radically lost. Pork was an unser was a, a food that was considered to be ceremonially unclean. Now that not, might not mean much to us today, and I'm not going to explain it a ton. But I do want to suggest that if we're going to understand the or the uh, the importance behind Jesus adding in this detail, we need to get the purpose behind purity laws in the Old Testament. You see, Jesus, our God, didn't just give these to be to just kind of hand out random rules. But rather, he gave these purity laws as a kind of spiritual object lesson to teach Israel an important, part, an important point about sin. Namely, that sin defiles you. It debases you. It dehumanizes you. And we see this in the story of the prodigal. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Jesus isn't just is, is suggesting that it's not only the case that he was feeding pigs, but in some sense he starts to become like them. He's dehumanized by sin. This is similar with how scripture often speaks about idolatry. Listen to Psalm 115. Idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, 
those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He's, he's saying, worship God, who is the author and sustainer of life, and you'll become like him. You will have true life because you'll be united to his divine life. But worship idols, human creations that are lifeless, and you'll become like them. So when the prodigal took off for the far country, he thought that he was going to try and find himself, to find true life. But ultimately, he finds himself hopeless and destitute. And again, we have to see ourselves in the life of the prodigal. You see, the, the, the story of the prodigal son is not just about conversion. It's not like, well, yeah, that's about someone who was away from Jesus, and then they converted, they came back to him, and now they're good. No, this is something that you and I will continue to feel. You see, friends, every morning you and I wake up to the siren song of the far country. I mean, we just sang about it earlier. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's the siren song of the far country. And it's not just one that the parable heard. It's one that you and I hear every day, a temptation that we face. And so in this parable, Jesus is giving us a warning. If we try to find our life outside of him, we'll end up losing it. And we'll end up becoming like the prodigal. We'll find ourselves debased, defied, uh, de defiled, and dehumanized. But the good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. You see, the prodigal story doesn't end there, and nor does our story have to end there. The third movement of his life is one of return. We see this in verse 17. It says, in verse 17, it says that he came to himself. He had this moment of sober clarity about his situation. He looks and he says, I'm out here slumming it with the pigs, trying to, wishing that I had their food, when back in my father's house, even the hired hands have plenty to eat. So he decides, he makes a plan. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. And he's going to go back and he's going to ask his dad to take him on as a hired hand. So what we see here is that the prodigal's desperation, his hopelessness, led to his return in a sense. And I think that from this we learn an important lesson about how God often works in our lives. He lets us experience the emptiness of life apart from him so that we'll return. So that we'll remember how good it is to live with God. And I wonder, friends, if that describes you today. I wonder if life feels empty. Now, some caveats are needed. Depression is a real thing. And there are seasons of life that are just particularly hard. But that aside, I think it's important that we 
ask ourselves, entertain this question. What if the emptiness that I'm feeling is God letting me experience some of the emptiness of living apart from him? What if this emptiness that I'm feeling is God calling me back to his fullness? And if, that, if you think that might be the case for you, let me encourage you to follow the prodigal's example. Return to God. Remember, like I said earlier, the key to being found is admitting that you're lost. Now, the good news is we can do this because of what we see, and we can do this assuredly because of what we see in the rest of the passage. You see, if verses 11 to 19 are about the prodigals radically, being radically lost, the rest of the passage, verses 20 to 24, are about him being radically loved by his father. And I want us to see us in, in three ways that the father acts towards the son. He, the father receives his son, he restores his son, and he rejoices over his son. He receives him, he restores him, and he rejoices over him. First, he receives his son. Remember, the inciting event for this parable was the, product, was, uh, the Pharisees saying that Jesus receives and eats with sinners. Well, again, I think in showing the way that this father receives his son, Jesus is looking at them and saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. The father is anticipating his son, and he looks and he sees him off in the distance, and he runs to him. Now, we live in a culture where um, a lot of people run for fun, which is totally a foreign concept to me, but we'll let it go. Uh, but at this point in time, especially for someone who was older and wealthy, running was not something that you did. It was beneath your, sta your station. It was considered an indignity to lift up your robe and to show your legs. And yet, that's what this father does. He lifts up his robes, he runs towards the sun, and when he gets to him, he hugs him, he embraces him, and he just starts kissing him. And the way that the word kissing is written in the Greek, it implies continuous activity. So he's just kissing him over and over and over again. Recently I saw a video that was making its rounds on social media of a child who had fallen into, the, into a well and had been down there for a while. They thought they weren't going to be able to get him out. But then another child volunteered to go into the well and be pulled back up with the child. It works. The child is brought back out and he's immediately put into the arms of his father. This father who probably imagined he'd never be able to hold his son again and he just can't stop kissing him. He just holds him and it's kiss, 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 kiss. And Jesus is saying that that is what God the Father does to us when we return. Notice here that the Father does the exact opposite of what the prodigal did to him. The prodigal rejected his father and ran away. But the Father runs towards the Son, embraces him, and showers him with his love. He is undoing the relational damage that had been done. And Jesus is saying, 
that that is what the Father is going to do for us as well. And that's what he has done for us in Christ. You see, I've used this illustration before, but we have this problem because so often we view God as a kind of cosmic Santa Claus. He's sitting up in heaven writing down who's been naughty and who's been nice, doling out presents to the good kids and coal to the bad kids. But this parable and the rest of Scripture tells us that that couldn't be further from the truth. You see, through His Holy Spirit, God pursues us into the far country and He compels us to come back and He assures us that when we do, we'll be received into His loving embrace. After being received by his father, the prodigal then uh, tries to follow through with his plan to ask his father to hire him back as a, uh, as a servant. But the father does so much better than that. He restores him completely. The father, I love it, he doesn't even respond to his son. Like He doesn't countenance his son's plan to get back in his father's good graces. He embraces him and then he immediately calls out to his servants, telling them to bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, put them on the sun. And you see, all of these things, they're status symbols. They're the types of things that nobility that would wear. They're the types of things that the sun would have worn before he left. They're the types of things the sun probably wore into the far country. They're the types of things the sun probably lost as sin debased, defiled, and dehumanized him in the far country. But when he comes to the Father, all of it is restored. The Father gives back to him all that the prodigal had lost. I want you to notice two things about this. First... The son doesn't do anything to earn or deserve this. Remember, his plan is to try and to kind of earn back his father's love. The father doesn't countenance that. He'll have none of that. All of the receiving and restoration happens because of the grace of the father. And then I want, to, I want you to see something else. That this father's grace, this kind of gracious act, is extremely expensive. Because the father is essentially uh, eating the cost of that lost inheritance. He's looking and saying, no, you're not going to earn it back from me. I'm going to bear the loss. I'm going to bear the pain. I'm going to bear the burden. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. You see, because of sin, we had a debt that we could never repay back to God. But Jesus takes it and pays it on the cross. And in so doing, not only does he restore us to God's love, but even better than that, in uniting us to himself, he lets us share in his sonship so that now we can truly call ourselves sons and daughters of the king. And we can know that because of that, there is never a day that the father can say, you know what, I've changed my mind, you're out that loving embrace will always be ours because it's always Christ's. And this isn't something that we earn. It's not something that we have to prove ourselves to get to God. We don't have to act as one of his hired hands to get this. 
the robe, the ring, the shoes, all of it is on us immediately at the point of repentance. All of this because of the gracious love of our Father. Now before we end, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the Father's response to his Son doesn't end there. It moves on. He receives his son, he restores his son, and then he rejoices over his son. Look in verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. You see, the fattened calf was, was a cow whose entire life, that cow was being prepared to be the culinary centerpiece of a grand feast. One that would have been planned for months, maybe even years. And the whole town would have been brought, uh, would have come to it. But we see that in this moment, the father throws custom to the wind. And without any planning, he calls for the fattened calf to be brought in and slaughtered and a feast to be thrown. Because to him, there could be no more worthy occasion than this. And friends, again, this same thing is true for us. God rejoices over our return. Every time you sense that you have strayed into the far country and you start to feel it and you repent and return to God, every time that happens, he rejoices at that. In the passage that Eric preached on last week, Jesus says this, he says, that all of the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. Why would they do that? Well, they do that because God does that. The angels follow his lead. So when you repent and return, it's as if God the Father is crying out, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost he was, and now he's found. Let us celebrate. And all of heaven erupts. In conclusion, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I watched a short documentary on Rembrandt's painting of uh, the, pro the return of the prodigal son. Even if you can't call that up in your mind, I promise you that you've probably seen it. It's one of his most famous paintings. And what makes this painting so great isn't just his technical mastery, but it's that he nails the emotion of the moment, probably more so than anyone else who's painted it. There's so many little details in the painting that speak volumes to this moment. Both of the father's hands are on the back of the prodigal. And one of them is, seems almost soft, as if the, 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 the father had been caught in the moment of rubbing his son's back, comforting him and consoling him. But the other hand is on the son's shoulder, and it's, it's shown to be visibly tense, as if... He has been pulling his son deeper and deeper into him at the same time. The son is knelt down. His head is buried into his father's chest. But his head is tilted ever so slightly, ever so slightly that you can sense on his faith that confluence of agony and relief. And then the father's robe is draped over the son almost to suggest uh, that his father is covering him, shielding him from the feelings of guilt and shame. 
And all of this is bathed in light while everything else is hidden in the shadows. Because Rembrandt knows that this is the most important part of not only this scene, but life itself. So here's what I want you to do. I've got a little bit of homework for you. I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to look up this painting. And I want you to to really meditate on it for a bit. And I want you to consider what would it feel like to be in that moment? What would it feel like to feel that embrace? And then after you've considered that, I want you to say to yourself, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because friends, if you are in here and you are in Christ, Jesus in this parable is assuring you that that embrace embrace from your heavenly Father is really and truly yours. And that there is coming a day in which you will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, and the siren song of the far far country will be gone, and forever you will be safe in your Father's house. You ain't seen nothing yet. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you that it shows us that we're radically lost, but we are also radically loved by you. Father, would you give us the grace to return, to repent, to come back to your love? And through your Holy Spirit, Father, would you help us, even in this moment now, to experience that love in a more powerful way than we ever have before. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.